Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. morning to be a really exciting mo moment for you who are followers of Jesus. And if you are here and you're like, you know, I'm just checking this place out, trying to figure out where I am in my spiritual journey, and, and there's this hunger that I have, but I just can't put my finger on it. I want this morning to be one of those mornings that you say, that was my moment. But for you Christians, I want this to be a moment where some of the things that you have been wrestling with, with who you are as a child of God, would come into fulfillment. I want it to be that. So what we are talking about is we are talking about the real reason for Christmas. We are talking about how when we look at the United States, 70 to 90% of Americans celebrate Christmas. Amen, right? Drive around, you look around, everyone has, and you're like, oh, you, you go to church. No, I just celebrate Christmas. Actually, less than 50% of Americans do not believe in the gospel message. Do you know that? But yet, there is this believing in this holiday and this ritual and the celebration of it, and we have these indicators of Christmas. So let me show you a few of them up on the screen. Which one's your favorite? How many of you love Rudolph? Come on, who's your first service? There was three of us, two ladies and me. And I'm like, there's something going on with me. What's happening, right? Rudolph, who's all your Rudolph people, right? Yes, right? Rudolph had purpose. That poor little reindeer, he had this nose. And every time he got excited, it, it glowed. And all the other reindeers used to play reindeer games, leaving him out. If I was really crying now, then you really need to leave the church, right? Or I need to go on a sabbatical. So it's this whole idea that, that Rudolph, he had this, like, this, this limitation that everyone called it, this, this frailty. But yet... One stormy Christmas night, Santa was not going to be able to bring presents to the whole world, and Rudolph guided the sleigh. And because of that, everyone wanted to be Rudolph's best friend. He played in all the games. He did everything. He was even captain of the dodgeball team. Pretty cool, right? <laughs> then you have Frosty. You got Frosty. Frosty the snowman. We should just be singing these. We're going to sing these next Sunday night. The dude was a snowman. Corn pop pipe and some butt and a button nose, two eyes made out of what? Coal, right? And then so what made Frosty come to life? It was the hat. The hat. The hat gave him purpose, and his purpose was joy. That's the only purpose of Frosty. He went down to the village and he made the, the cop get mad and the mayor fall over, and all the kids sang and everyone got happy, right? That was his purpose. Bring joy. But then you have the larger-than-life Christmas character, and his name is Santa. He's huge, right? Now, we could never have a skinny Santa or something was wrong, right? Maybe everyone's homes was gluten-free. We don't know what was going on. But, but Santa is larger than life, and his whole purpose is to bring toys to all of us, right? If you're good, you get gifts. If you're naughty, you don't. Right? Have any, were any of you threatened when you were little? Santa's coming. Santa's coming. Were you good or were you bad? 
And his purpose was to bring gifts. Now, think about this. All of these legends, all of these myths, all these folklores had this purpose for these creations. And yet, how often do we focus more on everything else at Christmas but for the one individual who brought real purpose? How often? How often do we as churches, I think sometimes we talk about Jesus and we talk about like, and Jesus was this other world. I mean, think about this. Think about how profound it is. Like, what is the real reason for Christmas? Yes, I love, please put those back on. They're so cool, right? I love these characters. I love the hope. I love the joy. I love all the little legends and myths and folklores that are wrapped around that, that give us hope and, and, and make Christmas fun. But what's the reason? You see, there is a reason. And just as those characters had purpose by their narrators, the main reason for Christmas is wrapped up in an individual who has purpose that he wants to give us purpose. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to ask you for just a great morning. I want to ask you for a refreshing morning. God, I felt when we were singing on our knees that we could have just all gone home and, and called it a day. Because sometimes we just need to stop and we need to just take all eyes off self and put them all on you. I ask you today, that as we look at the reason for, for you and your great love for humanity, that we would not only have our eyes on you, but your eyes would be on us. And there would be hope. And there would be dreams fulfilled. And we would have kingdom come. Will be done. In this room, in our church, in our communities, as it as is in heaven. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 24. You can look at it on the screen behind me. It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man. What does that mean? It means that he was right with God and right with others. That's what righteousness means. How are we not only with God, but how do people perceive us? And he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And Joseph, son of David, he said, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now stop right there. Every other angel encounter. Angels always tell the individuals, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of, of being in the presence of the divine. But I love what the angel says to Joseph. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary 
home to be your wife. I believe in that moment as Joseph was trying to be a right man. His greatest anxiety was even bigger than that angel. And the angel spoke to his greatest anxiety. Taking Mary to be his wife. And I want to say this, and I know this is a little sidebar. When we are vulnerable, we allow the Holy Spirit, the divine, to speak to our greatest anxieties. Amen? As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We discussed that last week. Christ our Savior. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Let's just look at the three movements of this passage. The first movement is the declaration that Mary is pregnant. Supernaturally. In a divine manner. The second one is this, this encounter with, with Joseph and the divine. With, with an angel. And the angel tells Joseph the very same thing that Mary had already told Joseph. But because it was the divine, Joseph listened. Some of the things that I love about this little narrative, just real quickly, is that one, he woke up and he did it. If God said it, it settles it, so go do it. Amen? Seriously, if you believe, if you believe in the prophetic, and you believe in the power of the word of God, you believe in the spirit of God, when God says it, it settles it, now go do it. And I love how, and I said this last week, is that, that Joseph didn't have sexual relations with Mary. Why? Because he never wanted to, sh to, to cause division in the narrative process. So there are Jewish rituals to know if someone was a virgin. And I bet you he wanted her to go through that. It's very powerful to think about that. But then there's a, there's a third focus, the third movement. When the angel declares that Emmanuel, God is with us. What does this mean? I mean, think about the Christmas characters. Rudolph, Frosty, Santa. Many believe that's who Jesus is. He's just like another one of the, like, the Christmas narrative characters. Like literally, they really believe this. You ever notice how like when you study scripture, Satan created nothing. Satan is the great imitator. Do you know that? He's the great imitator. Satan steals everything. I, I mean, think about the whole idea of Superman, right? This whole idea that this, this man from outer space comes down in the form of a child. But he was never from earth. He was never human. But he was a supernatural being that no one will ever live up to. Right? What does Satan do? 
He takes a really good narrative and he twists it. Every super, superhuman outside of Batman has this weird divinity that you can't put your hand on. Wonder Woman, she lived like in this weird place that we don't even know where it is. Aquaman lived under the sea. And where did he even come from? Right? Half man, half mermaid. You know, he's a merman, whatever he is. Right? There's this weirdness about it. But there's not this humanness. But yet, when you look at the, the Christmas narrative, you see that God is with us because God used humanity to be part of his supernatural narrative. And the woman was overshadowed by the presence of God. And she conceived the child. Fully man. Fully God. I love that. I love that every temptation that we've ever gone through, he will, he has gone through as well. And you're like, well, did he really go through this? Did he really go through that? Did he really go through this? Did he really go through that? Did he go to a party and did he feel tempted to drink? Dude, he was a teenager. That sounds sacrilegious. What does scripture say? What does scripture say? Right? You don't think he was tempted as we were? When you don't understand the fullness of the humanity of Jesus and the fullness of God being present amongst us, we miss out on the divine work of his true work of salvation. I love that mystery. I remember as a young man, there would be times that I'd be struggling with things. I'd be like, seriously, Jesus, you went through this too? Seriously? You battled with this? Any young men know what I'm talking about? Do I get an amen? Oh, seriously, come on. I'm going to come down there in a moment and slap you all, right? And I'm going to get fired, right? Right? Seriously, right? You don't think that there's temptations unto man that he was not ceased to? It's true, right? You don't think he was tempted to not go to the cross? You don't think that he was tempted to, 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 to give into temptation when he was tempted by the devil? I mean, everything, because he was fully God, yet fully man, and there's that beautiful mystery in between. That's what makes Jesus so beautifully unique. He's not frosty. He's not Santa. Definitely not Rudolph. But there's this mystery. You see, this is what it says. It says, it says all right then, in Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is amongst us. God is in our midst. And yes, as we talked about last week, he came to destroy the power of sin and death. He came to destroy that. He came to, to seek that which is lost, which is humanity. All of us at some point understand that we are lonely, we are isolated, and we're lost, right? Right? And yet in our humanness, in the midst of knowing how lonely and how scary that is, we still love this whacked out game called hide and seek. We purposely hide ourselves from others. Look what it says in scripture, Isaiah 53, 9. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. I love what Peter says. He, he was the precious, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. 
See, this is what Jesus was. He was set apart. He was set apart. He was set apart as God's very own. And he was set apart choosing to never be controlled by the power of sin, which means that death had no win. He was set apart. And he was set apart for a purpose. And and this is something where I really believe as Christians we miss out on. We miss out on it. We, we punch this holy ticket that's called eternity, and it's like Jesus is my Savior. And it stops there. It doesn't stop there. That's the entryway. That's the, I'm stepping into the kingdom of God, and I'm stepping into the kingdom of God in the presence of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that we would be set apart as his We don't wait around for once-a-year events. Every single day is Christmas. Seriously, how many of you started listening to Christmas music in July? Anyone? Right? There you go. Me and Holly. What up? Right? Think about it, right? I mean, seriously, we were, we were driving to Vermont, and I actually turned on some, some Christmas carols at one point. I love it because every day is Christmas because God is with us. Amen? Do I get an amen for that? And that we don't have to. We don't have to wait for an event to to culminate in our hearts and our minds by putting up trees and lights and all of these things and then go to church twice a year to to try to like foster up these feelings that we actually are able to live in every single day. Because here's why. You are set apart. I just got the, I got the gooseies. You are set apart. You see, there's a theological term for this. It's called sanctification. Just as Christ was sanctified, so are we being sanctified. Remember last week I talked about there's three different forms of salvation. You have the the past. He saves us from our sin. The present, which is what I'm talking about now. And the future is when we go into eternity. But what we do is we focus on the two. We focus on what he did and where we're going. We miss out on the joy of who we are right now. Who we are right now. Look what it says. This is what the the prophet prophesied. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. Remember that. I'm going to come back to that. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Peter says this, but you are not like that anymore. For you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Because of Jesus, we are given new identity. We get to step into the identity of who we are as sons and daughters of God. We choose that. But actually, he chose us first. Because when we look outside and we see the trees and we see all the animals that he created, he says, my greatest creation is humanity. 
Matter of fact, my greatest creation is so awesome, I created it in the image of who we are. I gave him hearts. I gave him a mind. But because of sin, that heart and that mind was distorted. But now Jesus has come to bring life that now we can live in this place that we are set apart as his very Look what Paul says. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone and a new life has begun. How awesome is that? I am made new. I'm made new. As a parent, you raise your children to want to understand their identity in Christ. As Christian parents, that was like our number one thing. But there has to be a point, even though they've lived under the roof of our leadership and our authority and our parenting, there has to be a moment, has to be a moment where they say that I am not just the son of Rob and Sue, but more importantly, I'm a child of God. And there has to come a point Though no matter how well we try, no matter how much good we do, we still mess up in our brokenness that our children decide to say, wow, in my wretchedness, I need to be more like him than them. That they're set apart. I prayed. I prayed for that moment. That they would realize that I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. And that identity is more important than being the child of Rob and Sue Parker. Because now, because I'm a child of God and they are children of God, we have future salvation together. Where's that identity coming from? There's an identity war right now. We know that. It's all everybody talks about. And if anyone would say, like, Pastor Rob, why do you think they're talking so much about identity? Because if you study church history, 20 years ago, there was a group of ministers and theologians and psychiatrists that really started pushing into the theological understanding of our identity in Christ. And the enemy knew that if he didn't mess with their identities, then Jesus would win even more. So what do you think the enemy did? He went after their identity. And we as a church better talk more about our identity in Christ than maybe anything else. Because who we are as sons and daughters of God set us up for what's next. I want you to say this. I am set apart. Seriously, declare it. I'm set apart. I am his. And he is mine. He is mine. You could say he is mine. Because I am his. Think about that. That's part of our sanctification. But here's what it also says. And this is not just New Testament teaching. We have to remember when you're looking at scripture, that there is a covering from Genesis to Revelation that speaks the gospel truth from beginning until the end of the holy book. It says in Isaiah 53.10, remember I read Isaiah 53.9 before, but look at the follow-up. It says, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. Who was him? It was Satan and caused him grief. 
I'm so glad that the one who causes me more grief, Jesus has caused him grief. Right? Every time the enemy gives you grief, remind the enemy that Jesus has already given him enough grief for himself. He will enjoy a... Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the, law, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Look what Paul says. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. You no longer are defined by your past. You no longer are defined by your past. If you've made huge mess-ups with addictions, with relationships, with finances, in your anger, violence, whatever you've done in your past, you no longer need to be controlled by that anymore. You may battle with that, but that is not who you are. Growing up in a house of seven boys is very violent. You can say amen for that. And I was a product of it. And I remember when I was really wrestling with my identity as a child of God, I gave myself a lot of excuses. And as a young daddy, I had a temper. And I remember that my temper would just kind of flare up out of nowhere. It was like my, 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 my fuse was like 4,000 feet long, but my, the bomb was just the size of like the moon. And I remember one time I, I got into a conflict with a family member, an extended family member, not my wife. So I was like, poor Sue, pray for her. No, that's not where we're at. And I literally flipped out. And I had no idea. But my youngest child walked into the room of me smashing something. I'm talking about vulnerability saying that in front of you. That just went public. And I remember in that moment, getting on my hands and knees and said, Jesus, I've given you every area of my life. need you to, to not only rip this out, but make me a gentleman, a gentle man. You see, I used to make excuses. Well, that's who I am. That's my personality, right? Right? Well, that's how my parents were. I'm Italian, right? Right? I'm sorry. My wife's Italian, right? I'm just Norwegian. That's all I am. But it's one of those things where, like, we have excuses, we have generational, we have eth ethnic, all these reasons. Why? Well, this is how my parents did it. This is how my grandparents did it. But that does not mean you have to do it as well. Right? Right? And I had an excuse. My brothers were angry. We fought over dinner. That's how we lived. And I said, I can't do that anymore because it's, I'm, if I'm going to be like that, my children will know they have permission 
in their anger. They are allowed to sin. You can be angry and not sin. Do you know that? You can be angry and not take it to that next level. I'm going to say this. People who've come out of addictions doesn't always mean you're an addict. You are not always an addict. You may wrestle with your addictions, but that does not define you anymore. Amen? You are a child of God who needs to deal with those things that you are most prone to and stay away from them. Because the moment that Jesus heals you, it settles it. Now you need to put yourself in a discipleship relationship Go to care group, get mentoring, be part of a small group that when you have those pulls for those addictions, whatever they are, because if you don't recognize that, you're going to trade one addiction for another addiction. You ever go to an AA meeting? They don't drink. They smoke like a chimney, right? And I don't say that meanly because they've never been told. They've been told their whole life, it's the alcohol, it's the alcohol, it's the alcohol. No, it's not. It's the heart. You do not need to be controlled any longer. As a follower of Jesus, you are released. You are released to live in the identity of who you are, that you are no longer controlled by sin anymore. What this means is, is that yes, you have a tendency to these things. Yes, you have a pull to these things. Yes, you are susceptible to certain things, but those things no longer define you. Do I get an amen for that? Right? And it's not just these big things, because when you take away the big things, then you have anger and bitterness and resentment and pride and arrogance, and then that evil word called ego. Ego is the enemy, because every sin begins with pride. You don't have to be controlled by anxiety. But your anxiety can be a trigger showing you how much Jesus wants to step into your moments. Or maybe there's a burden he's putting on your heart for you to be praying for others. Why? Because we no longer need to be controlled by those things. Sanctification. But are you putting yourself in a place where you're finding healing and hope and accountability as you walk through this process? See, we miss this. Peter said, but now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. The most holiest thing to recognize is how unholy I am. I am broken. I am frail. I have pulled to certain things. But because Jesus lives in me, I have a new identity, and those things no longer control who I am. I I love what the prophet Ezekiel says. He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. He gives us the gift of a new heart. Christianity is not about behavior. It's not about behavior. It's not about right and wrong. 
It's not about morality. Because morality is only based on the culture in which you live in. A new heart is saying that I'm wholly yours. And in being wholly yours, W-H-O-L-L-Y, I'm giving you everything. And you're going to shape me. And you're going to mold me. And every time I fall down, I'm going to pick myself back up. Every time I fall, seven times a man falls, seven times he picks himself up. You will fall. But that fall does not define you because you have a new heart. And every time you fall, you say, Jesus, why did I do that? Because your ego got in the way. Because your anger got in the way. Because your anxiety controlled you. We are given a new heart. Hearts are dynamic. Right? Something exciting happens. What does our heart do? Right? You're sleeping. Right? Right? You run out to your favorite restaurant. Right? Right? You have to watch a movie that you hate because you're trying to be a good spouse. Right? Fill in the gap. It's dynamic. And Jesus is dynamic. And what I love about the theology that, that we stand under as the Christian and missionary alliance is that when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about being set apart in our identity and set apart from sin to no longer be controlled by sin or death and that it's two things. It's progressive and it's Christ-y. It's progressive in that every single day that you feel like you are going around the merry-go-round. Anyone ever feel this? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, <laughs> right? Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and you're thinking, got up, fed the dogs, made the bed, went to the office, prepped for a sermon, did some counseling, went home, blah, blah, blah. But yet in every aspect of your every single day, the Holy Spirit is using events, the normal events, the mundane, the boring, the, the, the water cooler conversations to shape and mold who you are into the image of Christ. He's given you desires. He's given you things. I love how my one son just got his first real job. I love it, even though he's working in the basement almost every single day. Poor kid. I mean, these poor kids are, are working from home. He's on a Zoom call, and the two dogs are, like, licking his face and pulling on his leg. Like, seriously, right? He's a lawyer. And being a lawyer, that's not his identity. His identity needs to be formed in who he is as a child of God. So in his gospel vehicle, which is his vocation... God's going to use every single conversation to shape and mold him. First month, the dude worked like a total of 25 hours. He was so bored. He was so bored. He'd come upstairs and Sue would come in the other room. I love you, Brandon. I know you're right here, but I'm going to get to the highlight. And Sue would be like, this dude never works and he makes so much money. I'm like, I hate it. And it was one of those, like, it was funny. But now he's on a project and he's working, a, you know, literally he's working the 80-hour weeks of a lawyer. And he's literally in it. But that's not his identity. 
God's going to use every conversation, every opportunity, every situation to shape and mold his character. Will he be honest? Will he be truthful? Will he get angry? Will he freak out? Will he not stand up for himself? Will he share his gospel hope in the moment when someone else is on the verge of break? Right? It's dynamic. It's progressive. All the time, the Holy Spirit is at work within us. All the time. All the time. But it's also this. It's in our crises. They're kind of like the... I remember when we had our first child pushing that little boy down the hospital. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my world's about to change. And all I felt was the presence of God just being like, I'm going to use him to shape you. But what about for that person who can't have a baby? What about for that person who's been trying for, for months or years? And they feel like they feel shame. They feel like they did something wrong. And in that moment, just as much as with me, God is in the moment with you saying, I am in, I am in your presence. I am shaping you and I am molding you. I am not punishing you. I am preparing you for whatever is next. Right? Think about that. Think about when you were baptized and how exciting it was. That's a crisis moment. Crisis moments are good. You're like, I'll never go back to the way that I was. But what about that moment when that greatest temptation that only know you give into? You trip and you fall. God's in both. He's in both. And he's using both to shape us. You see, that's the beauty of, of, of our relationship with Jesus. It's dynamic. It's in the everyday mundane, right? Jesus would be walking around be like, dude, come follow me. Okay, we're going to come follow you. Then next thing you know, do you have like Zacchaeus hanging on a tree? Be like, hey, come on down. And that was like the biggest moment in his life, right? Zacchaeus like, I'm going to give everything away. Jesus like, I never said that. I never said that. You're trying to prove yourself to me. Don't prove yourself to me. You don't have to prove yourself to God. Just realize this in every single moment. God is at work. Why? Because it's all about what he's doing in here. Everything he is up to is the Holy Spirit living in you. Everything he's doing is, is that, that God amongst us is now God lives in us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The moment Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the moment, and with the moment we said yes to him, we are filled with the presence of God, and Emmanuel lives in us. Who allowed Mary to get pregnant? The Holy Spirit. And just as we come to a place of humility, and he hovers and he fills us, we are in the midst than a living, breathing, life-giving relationship with Jesus. That's the Christmas narrative. That's it. That's it. So let's make this real, relevant. Identity is the new buzzword. It's the new buzzword. 
My wife tells me about students who literally are walking around her junior high licking their paws. No, seriously. Mawa, New Jersey. How sad is that? You can be a puppy for the day. That's not mocking. I am not mocking. That is very sad. And Sue is trying to love on these students as they're sitting here just licking their paws. Relevant. God speaks to our identity. We are sons and daughters of God when we live in a place of recognition of who he is and who we are in light of him. It's exciting. It's exciting. I know most people hate conflict resolution. I know it. I grew up a middle child, textbook middle child, hated conflict. But Jesus says, I'm always in the middle of the conflict. You ever read my gospel narratives? I'm always in the middle of the conflict. And so now when I step into conflict, I'm saying, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do in me? Not how am I going to win the battle? What are you going to do in me? It's exciting. Every day God's going to do something new. Every single day God wants to do something new. Are you attuned to what God wants to do today? Not tomorrow. Not when you're not when you've kind of like situated what he wants to do today. It's authentic. It's authentic because he speaks to the human heart. I love when Sue's like, what's on your heart? What's on your heart? Tell me how you're really feeling. You see, that's what God cares about. It's authentic. He didn't go after our behavior. Our behavior is just a response to what God is doing in our hearts or how we are living in our, our places of selfishness, right? It, it, it's not just, it, it's not the outside that makes a person clean. It's the inside that makes a person clean, right? You can get a mug and you can be like, wow, it just went through the washing machine. And then you look at it and no one rinsed it out and there's hot chocolate chunks all over it. I don't want to drink out of this. He's going after our hearts. And it's life-changing. You in Jesus are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Well, that's a Rob Parker thing to do. Don't ever say that to me. Because God is constantly transforming me. Constantly. And nor should anyone say the same thing to you. Because if when you are in Christ, he is shaping and molding and building you into who you are, sons and daughters of God. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.com.